Sab. This is the You're Not Listening to This Podcast, and I'm Will James. Now today is going to get a little uncomfortable. I know that's a weird way to start, but it is what it is, and it's going to get uncomfortable. But over the last couple of weeks, there's been this growing storyline surrounding young Colin Kaepernick. Now, before you get worked up, I'm not going to spend too much time on him per se, but what he did and how the world is reacting to it is a very interesting thing that should be commented on. See, the spectrum of ranges of reactions to this has essentially gone from comparing the lyrics of the Star-Spangled Banner to a heritage of the same kind of ideas that brought down the stars and bars recently, to rhetoric of a rich, spoiled athlete waiting to complain about supposed oppression until after poor play in a big contract. How convenient, right? Everyone has an opinion on what he did, how he did it, and why he shouldn't have, yet it seems as though each of these conversations ends the same way. We sit and analyze each other's opinions and decide to point back to the man to ask, why is he being so divisive? I suppose my question is, are we sure it's Kaepernick that's being divisive? Why is shining a light on something negative about our country perceived as more divisive than that negative thing? Is it really that we can't look past his active omission to address his motive, or is that we don't want to address the motives and have found a convenient loophole? How can it be seen as the right message, wrong way, wrong time, when right now everyone is listening? I'd argue that the only reason this was bad timing is that he did it in the internet age, where too many people get to complain about it out loud. But it's not his fault that it's 2016 and these same old problems still exist. In this situation, I think we forget what a benefit hindsight is, particularly to solidifying our predetermined stances. We tend to look back for support of what we already feel as opposed to looking back to what actually happened. But let's look at the facts. A second-string quarterback stayed on the bench during the national anthem in an NFL preseason football game. That sentence, all on its own, is not a story. It's not particularly divisive at all. Yet it dominated public discourse for days. We knew doing the anthem wrong gets ridicule, just to ask Gabby Douglas, but there isn't a lot of historical evidence of the consequences of protesting it. So what if no one had asked Kaepernick why? What if the cameras weren't rolling and no one noticed in the first place? Or what if he was simply throwing a temper tantrum for being second string instead of making a political stance? If his message had been, I should be starting... We just call him a crybaby and move on. Yeah, we we probably still would have crushed him for a lack of patriotism and offense to armed forces. And that actually might have cost him his career. And we'd definitely still be mocking him for it. But would we still be angry outside of San Francisco? So then tell me, is it really just the method we're upset about? I've heard and understand the perspective of how sitting out the anthem offended people who feel it was a slight to the men and women of the armed forces. But once he clearly stated his motives and intentions, which in no way had anything to do with the armed forces, why does the anti-military angle still persist? Once he kneeled in reverence to the military, donated a million dollars to community organizations, putting his money where his mouth is, once his pig sock showed he hasn't actually always been politically quiet, why do we still not want to get past the method to get to the message? No, I don't think the action was divisive. We, as a nation, are divided. We're that family that presents well in public but can't sit down together at a dinner table because of that thing years ago. Our dirty little secret. The elephant in the room we refuse to fully address. Some people in the family know that none of them can move on until the problem is faced head on. Others believe that if we ignore it long enough, it'll go away on its own. Some are still in full-blown denial. You know that very loud contingent that believes racism has long been dead, but the Obama family brought it back for political gain? You know, those are real educated people. People that see a connection between an increase in public racist discourse and the election of a black president and think the problem is the black president. Perspective. But as in such a family, instead of having the conversations we need to have, we simply crucify the person who breaks the silence. 
Deep down, we should know the problem lies within us all, but for some reason, that's too difficult a truth for us to bear. So as I sit and observe the current situation, I have this question. If you're tired of hearing about racism and so disgusted by one man's protest of it, how tired do you think we are of enduring it and having to protest it? And why is the best understanding we're given is this noise of, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with the methods of your direct action and wait for a more convenient season. When these are the same words of warning spoken by Dr. King in a letter from a Birmingham jail 53 years ago. But we've come so far, right? Now, please don't feel attacked. I'm just a guy talking and no one's listening. I just want to make you think. So let me explain. I believe that for the most part, people operate off of feelings. Things affect us at our base levels. And we find words that justify those feelings. Often we find them from some secondary source and we rinse and repeat. Not because we're not smart or can't think for ourselves, but more because digging into our own emotions and motivations is difficult and scary. For some, Kaepernick's actions seemed off to them, but they weren't sure why. It didn't just feel somehow unpatriotic, it felt big. But when the why of what he did was a cause of such importance, it began to feel wrong to still feel angry. But instead of discovering why we feel this tension, we attach to the first thing that seems to alleviate it. We peruse social media and web content for some video clip or written post to put words to these feelings that shifts the tension and shifts attention. And oh boy, if we can find a black guy that says the other black guy's wrong, is it our birthday or something? But attaching yourself to another's ideas helps people feel validated in their emotions without having to actually define and explore those emotions. It's a get-out-of-jail-free card for personal growth. Race brings attention people tend to crack under. It's easier to find a non-racial issue to talk about or various nonsensical reasons to say the person protesting is the wrong man for the job. That's why from time to time you have seen your friends posting things you can't imagine they could really believe or are filled with clear logical flaws. Sometimes it's a quick, underdeveloped reaction to this tension. And sometimes it's just the realization that some of your friends are a-holes. But here's the thing. Ultimately, we've all got to face these demons and we can't ignore them. If your fatigue has not been earned, it's simply weakness and must be overcome. We have a problem. A problem with such a deep history. A history that's forced upon some members of society and completely ignored by others. A country gripped by the conflict of having a past that cannot be swept under the rug while so many stand by holding their brooms. So let's not get stuck in the method of protest and move to the motivations. The motivation of Kaepernick's first sitting, now kneeling, was in part the disproportionate amount of unnecessary violence against African Americans by the police in this country, particularly unjustified shootings. Now, I'm aware that there's not a national consensus on this issue. I'm annoyed, but aware. Many people feel as though this is a false narrative spun for some ulterior motive. Uh, I remember recently a study came out in the New York Post which indicated there was maybe not a statistical evidential background for this narrative. The Post stated there really is no race bias shown in the statistics around police shootings when 1,332 shootings were examined between the years of 2000 and 2015. They coded these police narratives with questions like, uh, how old was the suspect? How many police officers were at the scene? Were they mostly white? Was the officer at the scene for a robbery? Violent activity, a traffic stop, or something else? Was it nighttime? Did the officer shoot after being attacked or before a possible attack? They found that in 10 cities involved, white people were more likely to be shot at by police without first attacking them. And that's basically even odds as to what would happen if either group was armed. It seems to discount the current rhetoric until you realize the study didn't account for population the Washington Post stated, in, I think a couple of days later, that to the most recent census, there's nearly 160 million more white people in America than there are black people. 
In reality, white people make up roughly 62% of the U.S. population and 49% of those who are killed by police officers. African Americans are only 13% of the population, but account for 24% of those fatally shot. That means that black Americans of any and all ages are two and a half times as likely as white Americans to be shot and killed by police officers, by the numbers. What's interesting is the New York Times article was quoting their statistics from ProPublica. But ProPublica actually does account for population. And when they did that, an even more interesting trend was found. They studied another 1,217 shootings from just the three years of 2010 to 2012. Black males from ages 15 to 19 were 21 times more likely to be fatally shot than white males in that age group. 21 times. One way to look at that is to calculate how many more white males over that three-year period would have had to have been killed just to equal it out. Would have been 185 more. More than one a week. Now, statistics can say whatever you want, but consider this. The study in the New York Times, without accounting for population, still found that African Americans are greatly more likely to have every other form of force used against them than their Caucasian American brothers and sisters. Every other form, by at least 17%, without correcting for the population. Now, what's really difficult about this national discussion is it takes all these dead bodies to get the national attention, and even the dead bodies aren't enough to justify a silent protest. But the problem is way bigger than these shootings. These are simply the most cognitively dissonant results of this conflict. These are symptoms, not the disease. But it's here where we attempt to decide on a grand scale whether there's racism or not at all. But to speak of racism and injustice in only the terms of police statistics is misleading. Racism is a unique issue in that there are overt, objective issues to point to, sure, but there are these deep-rooted undertones. In the new Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, Michelle Alexander wrote, When we think of racism, we think of Governor Wallace of Alabama blocking the schoolhouse door. We think of water hoses, lynchings, racial epithets, and whites-only signs. These images make it easy to forget that many wonderful, good-hearted white people who were generous to others, respectful of their neighbors, and even kind to their black maids, gardeners, or shoe signers, and wished them well, nevertheless went to the polls and voted for racial segregation. Our understanding of racism is therefore shaped by the most extreme expressions of individual bigotry, not by the way in which it functions naturally, almost invisibly, and sometimes with genuine, benign intent when it is embedded in the structure of a social system. Consider the Alton Sterling shooting. People wanted to see no racism in the Alton Sterling shooting so badly that they avoided the realization that they just watch a man shot to death on their cell phones. Now, we'll change the channel to avoid Sarah McLaughlin and mistreated puppies wondering, how could someone let this happen to those animals? But we all watched that man get shot and bleed out. Philando Castile as well. The dominant reaction was not to turn our heads away in disgust. The dominant question was not, how could this happen? How could someone do this? The only question became, was Alton Sterling shot because he was black? But the question should have been, was Alton Sterling murdered? Were the police justified in shooting a man out of reasonable fear for their lives when that man was lying on his back with two officers on top of him with their guns already drawn? Is that reasonable? Would it be reasonable if you were laying on the ground like that? It doesn't matter what may or may not have happened if Alton Sterling was white. Because he is black, his being black matters to the craze of public opinion on both sides, on all sides. So now... We ask if his killers were racist, and if they cannot be found to be that, then they're also not killers. See, while his skin color in the eyes of the police may or may not have controlled the situation, his skin color in the eyes of public opinion will control the outcome for society. We'll never reach a consensus on these incidents because we're debating something deeper and less tangible than police officers and cell phone footage. 
It's the fight between those that say, if you can't see racism in this extreme instance, you'll never see it anywhere. Versus those that say, if you can't unequivocally prove racism right here in this one instance, then it really isn't anywhere. See, police brutality may be a problem, but it's the refusal to acknowledge not only the present perception of inequitable treatment of minorities by those meant to serve them, but the statistically provable inequity and the objectively obvious history of it through our American history that truly plagues our progress and the historical cycle of this being ignored instead of understood continues. But we're so backwards, we don't just deny the current evidences of racism. We pretend that these issues cropped up overnight in this mythical post-racist society. But police were blatantly beating and attacking peaceful African-Americans with dogs, hoses, batons, etc. Not 50 years ago. Your parents grew up accustomed to watching people that look like me being treated like animals in the street. Even seeing pictures of our bodies hanging from trees. Your kids are growing up the same way. We like to pretend that these events were a long, long time ago and far, far away, but they weren't. Take lynchings, for instance, a thing so old and outdated that fraternity kids at OU can sing songs about it supposedly without knowing what it means. And that's what that kid said in his apology, right? Not to the university and its students, but to the random ministers from a town 20 minutes away, right? He had no idea of the meaning behind the words he was singing in that now infamous chant until those kind black ministers explained it to him. And had he known what he knows now, he would have been different. Now, I'm not sure what's so complicated to understand about you can hang them from a tree, but they'll never sign with me, but I, I digress. Anyway, let's take this despicable activity from that sweet little ditty and talk about it. No one really knows when lynching started because no one considered there was anything wrong with it in the beginning. As a result, there are no reliable lynching statistics before 1882, but from then until 1959, 4,733 bodies had hung officially. That's an average of one lynching a week. How often are these shootings happening now? And Michael Donald is the last recorded victim of an old-fashioned lynching when two Klan members randomly selected him to die because another black man, accused of a shooting a white police officer, had his case ended in a mistrial due to the jury not being able to come up with a guilty verdict. Now, ultimately, after a couple more mistrials, this man was convicted of that murder. But on the day of the first mistrial, and because of it, Michael Donald, who had nothing to do with any of this, was kidnapped, driven into the woods, beaten with a tree limb, had a rope wrapped around his neck, was strangled before having his throat slit, and then being hung from a tree in a mixed neighborhood, across from a house owned by the Klan leader in the area, who happened to be the father of one of the killers. This was 1981. Reagan-era America, the time we supposedly need to get back to, right? Now, the police chief suspected the Klan originally. But surprise, a narrative of a drug deal gone wrong took hold instead. Several arrests were made in that vein, but obviously no conclusions. The FBI steps in, but they have no luck figuring out this case either. Despite the fact that two days before the murder, the leader of the Klan, across from whose house Donald's body was hung, had declared if a black man can get away with killing a white man, we ought to be able to get away with killing a black man. Despite the fact that a burning cross was left at the courthouse the day of the mistrial and the lynching. No, it took Jesse Jackson, a devastated mother, and a second FBI investigation to come up with the truth. My point is, these were always the facts, but people didn't want to see this truth as existing still. So it took three investigations, two years, to agree on what today seems so obvious. How will we look back at these current events in another 30 years? In 1983, the year I was born, Michael Donald's killers were finally arrested. I was six when their accomplice was tried. Ten years later, I had a gun to my face held by a white police officer who couldn't figure out how I happened to be in the possession of a Honda. I was turning left onto the street where my parents still live in my 1992 white Honda Prelude, affectionately referred to as Agnes. Now, she had 100,000 miles on her when my dad got her for me. 
for saving him future tuition money, even though I hadn't officially gotten my scholarship yet. No pressure. <laughs> no, I transferred to a magnet school for math and science nerds 90 miles away, needed a vehicle to get back home on the weekends. So when this police officer gets to my window, which was already rolled down, Kirk Franklin on the radio turned down to one, hands at 10 and 2, which is not colorful storytelling or guessing. It's my go-to move today. The first thing he did was comment on how nice a car Agnes was and how she seemed a little too nice for him not to need to know if she was actually mine and how I got her. So I told him what I just told you. He told me he pulled me over for crossing the median. Now, there wasn't a median, so we'll assume he meant the center line. And Mind you, I made a left turn, and I have yet to figure out how you turn left without doing that. So I explained to him I lived on that street, which was why I had properly signaled my left turn from the statutory distance of at least 100 feet prior to making it. Proper signaling happens to be a pet peeve of mine, and I knew there was a cop behind me. He asked me for my license. Is one of those old-school Oklahoma laminated licenses that were just a little bit too wide for your sleeve. So it got stuck. After struggling to pull it directly out and failing, I wiggled my wrist back and forth to free it, you know? He accused me of driving drunk, though at the time I had never even tasted alcohol, citing this hand gesture of mine as his probable cause. He also seemed undeterred by the fact that my license proved I did in fact live on that street. No, he pulled me over because he had a hunch something was amiss based solely on the parts of me he could see through my driver's side window. Now, I'll freely admit that the gun to my face was largely my fault. <laughs> I was an absolute gentleman the entire time, but after he accused me of being drunk, as well as potentially stealing and or inappropriately obtaining a seven-year-old Honda, he forced me out of my car. Now, at this point, I'd done nothing wrong. I was not speeding. I properly signaled, like I said. I politely and honestly answered all of his questions. My license proved me truthful. A lot of people wouldn't have even gotten out of the car. A lot of people wouldn't have remained as compliant and, frankly, submissive as I was behaving. But I did. I got out with my hands in plain view. He told me he was putting me in the backseat of his cruiser for an indefinite period of time. I asked for a little clarity on why. And for how long? And he wouldn't say. I asked if I was being taken to the police station. He said, we'll see. Well, I don't know too many people would get in the back of police cars and they'll end up going somewhere. So I assumed I was going for a ride. But my car, Agnes, was sitting there, keys in the ignition, running, windows down, moonroof open. All I could think of is I'm off somewhere and someone's going to see Agnes at this relatively busy intersection and take her. I'm a 16-year-old boy, remember? So, like an idiot, I asked the cop to hold on for a moment. I turned, reached through the window to turn off the car. So, of course, when I turned back around, I'm staring down the barrel of his service weapon. He was very upset. <laughs> he didn't handcuff me, but he did place me in the back of his car. He told me he could have killed me. And ultimately, he just sat there for a minute, ran my license and insurance, though I'm not sure why I needed to be in the back of his car for that. As it turns out, my insurance had expired that week, which was part of the reason I'd been coming home that weekend. My updated verification was in the mail. It had come and was sitting on the piano at the house down the street. He gave me a ticket, and I went home. Now, I think about that day a lot, and I for sure know what not to do any other times, but... Not everyone gets a chance to do it wrong the first time. If he'd shot me right then, he'd have technically been justified. I reached into my car. I'd be dead for driving a Honda and being stupid, but not for breaking any laws and not for posing any actual threat. My insurance was up to date, even though the verification sheet was old. And yeah, that's an issue, but it wasn't knowledge he had when he pulled me over. The only person that knew the initial stop wasn't justified in the first place was me. And I'd be dead, closer to my house than I used to have to be when the street lights came on. No, this wasn't my last, an unprovoked brush with law enforcement, but I won't bore you with more stories that you'll choose not to believe anyway. My point is, most men that look like me have at least one of these stories. And they don't make the evening news. 
they just let us know that at any time, anywhere, someone might try to put us in our place. And when someone does die, these stories, these emotions, they're the ones that are evoked from our past and they're what we remember. We think about those couple of times that really actually could have been us. And it's terrifying because we were almost Alton Sterling. Our brother or our father was almost Philando Castile. We're raising Tamir Rice's, Mike Brown's, and Trayvon Martin's. And we're tired, angry, and fearful from watching these people die all too often for being stopped for minor offenses, if anything at all. Shot while walking away, running away, lying down, or yeah, even slashing a tire and throwing some punches. Given a capital punishment for selling Lucy's or DVDs, or maybe just for talking a little sh**. Killed for an alleged offense without or despite a legal trial, the literal definition of lynching. The rope is simply a style choice. These aren't just instances of lefty media propaganda getting out of control, it's real. Yet so much of the population stands defiantly in denial of it. So what's really going on? What is there to gain? See, as long as there's something at stake, we'll always argue this reality. I think at the base of these thoughts and fears is a guilty conscience. This underlying acknowledgement of an undue benefit from the past of some and an injustice in others. I believe at the base of it, there's a knowledge that something is had that was taken and cannot be given back, matched with an undertone of a constant worry that we might just take it anyway, as if it were something tangible that could be taken. But this undertone will mean that I'll have to have conversations with my son and my daughter that many of you won't have to have. I'll have to explain the difference between having freedoms and being free. I'll have to explain the ugly truth of what Toni Morrison said, that in this country to be American means to be white and everyone else has to hyphenate. And while it may not be the majority of people anymore, some will dislike everything about him or just enough about her because of one little detail. They'll apply a negative mark on the ledger from Jump Street. That extra nuance of the binary conflict of us versus them, right versus wrong, good versus evil, hero versus villain, normal versus other. This binary system is a practical lens through which to view the world because so many people you'll encounter will use the same. But to use this lens is to buy into several false ideas. <laughs> and this is where... If I haven't run you off yet, white versus black, where does this come from? First, you have to accept the notion that being white is a real thing. See, I'm not sure if you know this, but white is a relatively new term as a descriptor of people. Apparently, the term white race or white people entered the major European languages in the later 17th century, originating with the racialization of slavery at the time in the context of the Atlantic slave trade and the enslavement of native peoples in the Spanish Empire. Essentially, white only became necessary as a description in defining oneself in order to distance who you were from those you had enslaved. As time went along, it became societally important to maintain that distance to ensure your bloodline was still you know, pure. This is not to suggest that some people were not just proud of their heritage and backgrounds. There's nothing wrong with that. But what was retained was, was not country of origin, like British American, French American, German American, whatever. No, what was retained was white and slave. Consider this. Eventually the term mulatto was created, but not to describe a person who was of diverse heritage. It was created just to describe anyone who might not be white. In pre-Civil War Virginia, there was a statute that read, Be it enacted and declared, and it is hereby enacted and declared, that the child of an Indian and the child-grandchild or great-grandchild of a Negro shall be deemed, accounted, held, and taken to be a mulatto. Now think about that. For some reason, it was now legislatively necessary to define how much white was enough white or rather how much other was too much. You may assume that the legislative progression would indicate societal progression. Perhaps these were the seeds of a more inclusive society. But instead, after the abolition of slavery, 
the societal desire to maintain this distance grew dramatically. By 1924, within my grandmother's lifetime, whose 94th birthday we just celebrated, love you, Olive Ruth, Virginia passed another law, the Racial Integrity Act of 1924. <laughs> Solid name, by the way. Which required, it required classifying everyone at birth into two groups, white or colored. It defined a person as colored if they had one drop of sub-Saharan African blood in their DNA. One ancestor, anywhere at all. You've all heard of the one drop rule, right? The point wasn't to determine the individual's past ancestry and heritage or to seek out existential answers of who that individual was. It was to accomplish the simple goal of knowing I'm not like them and I'm in no way tainted. To illuminate a preferential status, a superiority, you can't come from the country of white. There's no flag to raise. There's no national colors to adorn. White's neither a race nor a nationality. Noel Ignatiev stated that whiteness is not a culture. Without the privileges attached to it, the white race would not exist, and white skin would have no more significance than big feet. White's not even accurately descriptive. It's simply a declaration of position, a birthright a title, but ultimately an illusion, an adjective described not physical appearance, but genetic favor of master instead of servant. And it's awkward because this explanation, though fact-based, feels off for most people today. You don't feel a pride from this heritage, yet you want the right to be proud of your heritage. It's uncomfortable to have to own slavery as part of it. But who are you talking to? If this is to be true of white, then uh, that it's ultimately an illusion, it stands to reason, it would also be true of black. And as a black man, I'll admit, I don't like making this argument. I quite enjoy being so appropriately hued and partially defined by it, and I'm proud of the family history I know of. I'm youthfully imaginative about the family history that's forever lost across the Atlantic. Slavery may be as far back as I can trace my history, but it's far from my beginning. Yet is that pride an illusion, an elaborate defense mechanism? Honestly, this is only a question worth going into because I was born in the 80s. We were black when I was born, and society has presented very little reason to question it ever since. My parents, however, were born in the 50s, and we weren't really black then. I mean, we were, but it was about to take on a new meaning. Words, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm... I'm sure the term had been used many times along American history, affectionately and pejoratively, but it's not as though African natives throughout history describe themselves as black. Why would they? They were what they were, with no reason to categorize in that manner. Black as I'm talking about it here is black like Stokely Carmichael meant it, like Malcolm and Huey, like Bruce my father and Clyde his. Black as power, black as pride, black as rebellion. The problem is we've accepted for far too long the idea of black as feared. See, James Baldwin wrote that black has become a beautiful color, not because it is loved but because it is feared. And though that was decades ago, not much has changed. From clenched purses and locked car doors to calling the police because your black neighbor is jogging at night to shooting a young man in the streets, a Ferguson out of the fear that if he hits you again, you might die, even though the first punch left no mark, no scar, no contusion. That's factual from the grand jury testimony, by the way. So if a black man is scarier to a reasonable person than a white man, then claiming self-defense and killing him is easier to prove and be believed to the majority of the country. Think about that for a second. So how did we get here? Well, back to the 17th century, of course, in the slave trade. The Spanish called us negars, N-E-G-A-R-S, some Spanish derivative of the color black. That seems to be the beginning, according to Wikipedia, but that was just how slaves were described in manuscripts. From there, Nagars evolved into other names and descriptors. I'm sure you can imagine. We've been called many names since, some more elegant than others, but one common thread has remained. These names were given to us. They're not our own, and they did not have our best interests in mind. Most of us still carry some mark of slavery as our last names. I mean, William James likely isn't a name passed down from Africa, if you know what I'm saying. 
There's a grave danger in allowing someone else to define you. It not only creates a false narrative about who you are, both individually and collectively, but it also dismisses any deviations from that narrative as an anomaly, not proof that the narrative is flawed, i.e. the eloquent Negro or the guy that's not that black. So how were black people defined? Have you ever wondered how you go from owning a race of people than living with them after they're freed? How you, how you justify what you were doing yesterday once it's declared that what you were doing yesterday was wrong? See, I feel like people don't consider the fact that people liked having slaves. Dudes weren't agonizing over cracking the whip. What must have been the perception of black people in white eyes? I'll tell you. <laughs> in 1900, there was this book published called The Negro, A Beast or the Image of God written by Charles Carroll, and the purpose of this book was to take the two prevailing theories of the origin of man, being divine creation or evolution, and explain how both, those so disparate from each other, especially in 1900, mind you, how they could both come to agree on the principle that the Negro, by natural prescription, was inferior. The theories presented in the book were admittedly controversial, even at the time, but the theories they were hoping to replace were no better, and they were rooted in a book held in much higher esteem. Cursed by Canaan, a slave of slaves, a slave to his brothers. Genesis 9.25. The then prevailing theory of the origin of the Negro. See, <laughs> to believe in the completely literal interpretation of the Bible, one must believe that the entirety of the human populace was washed away in the Great Flood. All of humanity except Noah's family. And though no matter what belief system you prescribe to, the part of the world where life began is a part of the world that produces only people of color, in 1900 America, Noah, for some reason, was unquestionably white. Not particularly British or Irish or Russian or Italian, just white. Origins unknown. After his son, Ham, found him drunk, naked, and unconscious, Noah cursed Ham's son, his own grandson, Canaan, a curse to be a slave to his brothers. This phrase was long used as evidence of a divine curse that changed everything about Canaan's entire genetic makeup. If I may steal from the Negro a Beast book, it spread his nose, elongated his forehead, grew his head size while shrinking his brain but increasing brawn, simultaneously spawning a new race of people, the Negro, whose God-given purpose was now being a slave to his white brothers. How tidy. Let me remind you, at this point, slavery has been abolished for 35 years. Yet the explanation for why it was okay in the first place was still growing and changing. But this was apparently progression. No, I agree with the authors in that this explanation needed re-examination, but ultimately their conclusion was even more egregious. They believed that the Negro, to not be a human at all, but a beast created on the sixth day of existence prior to the formation of man in God's image, a beast to work the field for man. You see, man was given the authority to expand across the earth and, quote, subdue it with his dominion over all living things in Genesis 1. But he wasn't cursed to have to sweat for food until the fall in Genesis 3. So it stands to reason, then, that something else must have been intended to do the laborious work of man. White man. Man that was made in God's image. A beast. Outside the church, the debate was settled. Man is a highly developed species of ape of which the white is the highest and the Negro the lowest race, with browns, reds, and yellows as the intermediate races in different stages of development. This was accepted science. How colors fade. The book states that when we turn upon the narrative of the fall in Eden, the inspired light of the narrative of creation, the fact becomes plain that it was not the original design of the creator that man, the son of God, should be the subject of physical toil, beyond such as is inseparable from mental toil. So to have no alternative than to decide that there must be upon the animal some creature 
upon which God bestowed mental ability and physical form in such near approach to man as would enable him in the capacity of servant to perform the manual labor necessary to subdue the earth under man's control. When we appeal to science to identify this creature, she promptly invades the so-called human species and points us to the Negro, which possess the essential characteristics of a servant. The Negro possesses the erect posture, a well-developed hand and foot, articulate speech, and is withal a tool-making, tool-handling animal. These characteristics preeminently fit him for the position of servant, while the low order of his mentality disqualifies him from a higher sphere. Think about this. When your great-grandparents were dating, there was a debate going on, not just inside America in general, but inside the Christian church, too, as to whether or not black people were the result of a curse of God to be subservient to you, or an actual subhuman beast a gift to you. In case you think 1900 was a long time ago, and too long to matter, and that these theories have been disproved, first, not everyone believes these theories have been disproved. There's a Christian group right here in Oklahoma that still believes in this stuff. But secondly, your grandparents were raised by people who believed this. Your parents played in the laps of people that believed that people like me were subhuman. Your parents experientially were trained to view me the same way. Remind yourself of the black quarterback debate. Now, I'm 33, and I remember conversations on television about whether or not black people were smart enough to play the quarterback position. Where do you think that comes from? Why is an articulate black man still something to marvel at? You know, the scientific research at the time from neurologists would say that the, the gulf is far too wide and deep, which separates between the mental indolence and incapacity of the Negro, which accomplishes nothing, and the flashing intellect, the restless energy, and the indomitable courage of the white, which enables him to discover, conquer, and develop continents. So no matter your religious belief or scientific awareness, what everyone could agree on was this. White was better, pure, complete, evolved, divine. White was superior. The creation of white, though, necessitated an antithesis. You see, as an undefined, dark-skinned being, one could somehow justify our treatment. One could ignore basic human empathy. However, once labeled, whether as bearing a divine curse, being a subhuman beast created for labor, or simply closer to the great apes on the evolutionary scale, a mystique was created. A mystique that could not be mentally equal to the white, but could be superior physically, something dangerous the black man. Newspapers were filled with stories of the mythical giant Negro. Headlines that read, battle to death with giant Negro. Giant Negro disables four policemen in fight. Manufactured stories of rape and kidnapping to justify those lynchings we talked about earlier. And if we weren't monstrously large, we were sexually insatiable. If not that, we were going to rob and kill you. A narrative was spun and it was believed. This fear of the black man and a purposeful avoidance of him segregation white flight sundown towns put barriers back up redlining and discriminatory money lending kept them there sundown towns by the way would would post advertisements about how there were no black people in town i happened to live in a former one edmond oklahoma an ad used to run here that read edmond a great place to live six thousand citizens and no negroes all one sentence that's all it said See, back in the day, thousands of towns across the country purposely kept all ethnicities out of their towns and census numbers. Then if you happened to be an ethnic minority that was in the city limits after sunset, well, good luck to you, sir. Now, Norman, where my alma mater, the University of Oklahoma, is located, was a sundown town until 1949. The first black family to own a home there didn't happen until 1967. And they're still there, by the way. And it was a dusk curfew for African-Americans then. Distance. It's purposely maintained, and stereotypes and myths were purposely created and perpetuated. This, this fear still exists. You see it sneak around the facade from time to time on the news, in social media, even in polite conversation, from the innocuous idea of the bad neighborhoods and public schools that 
only received that name after the first family of color moved in, to the way some simply believe that the melanin content of an individual determines whether or not he is a teen or a thug. Remember those statistics about black kids between 15 and 19 being more than 21 times more likely to be shot than their Caucasian counterparts? Now think of how I just spoke of the false narratives of the past and consider all the current constant news alerts and statistics of black-on-black crime, which is a horrible problem, as crime is a problem in general. But these statistics fail to mention that crimes, particularly violent ones, are most commonly committed by people you know, live near, or are related to you. So yes, according to the FBI's 2014 Uniform Report, Black-on-black violence accounts for a little less than 90% of homicides against black people. But white-on-white violence accounts for 82% of homicides against white people. But you don't hear the term white-on-white violence very much, do you? No. And I'm not talking about a conspiracy here. I'm saying in America, white-on-white violence is just violence. It's normal. It's American It's not white people's problem, it's that white guy's problem. But when black people are involved, it becomes something else for some reason. Look, I'm not suggesting that there aren't truly dangerous and violent neighborhoods, but can it really be said that those areas are violent because they're black? Or is it more likely that we as a nation allow certain cycles to continue with as little interference as possible because they're black? But we leave this idea of black-on-black violence out there, and a city can turn into South Chicago, and the rest of the country thinks it's natural. Not the result of so many continued systemic failures converging in one area, but that's a whole other podcast. And when we speak of the injustices, why, why are we told to go to these communities to fix them first? Have you ever asked yourself why you don't consider them to be your communities as well? Is it this mystique? this belief? Everyone's buying into it, and it's as old as slave chains. Do you remember that school security guard in South Carolina who threw that 12-year-old girl like a rag doll in her classroom for refusing to leave that classroom? We all knew we didn't have the full story, but there was what seemed to be an objective crossing of the line by an adult male against a preteen girl, but apparently I was wrong. Apparently that was subjective. There was a guy I know from college who got into this argument about it online. He said the security guard had to do what he had to do because he didn't know if, quote, I swear, one of her thug friends would come up behind him with a knife or something. Now, if you've forgotten this video, let me remind you that no one in the classroom moved. No one got up from their seat. Nothing. The teacher took a bath in the media for not stepping in. Nobody moved. So where were these stab-happy thugs that my friend thought the security guard was protecting himself from? They only exist hypothetically, but fear of imaginary thugs justified this abuse of force. No, what, what did exist was a defiant 12-year-old black girl. Seeing her, just seeing her skin, posture, and demeanor allowed this guy's brain to invent an entire gang of murderous 12-year-olds parading through the school waiting for her girls to give them the call. See, what you say when you think you aren't saying anything tells the world at all. And what you see when you look at me could cost me my life. Now, this security guard had been labeled with a history of excessive force, but then also had a hundred kids walk out in silent protest of his firing. Was he a good guy or a bad guy? Aside from the fact that asking that question is a societal ill all on its own, I think this is a perspective thing as well. I think, I think the kids that say he was fun and kind and made them feel safe aren't lying. I think everyone that thinks he used excessive force is definitely not wrong either. I think Officer Fields is probably a great guy when he's looking at students, and he's something else when he's looking at suspects. For some people, that word carries a lot of different connotations. It's a type. A person suspected of crime A is likely just as capable and incentivized to commit crime Z. I've heard this argument all the time in the criminal defense courtroom. It sounds like, well, he may not be guilty of this, but I guarantee you he's done something else and gotten away with it, as if 
that's somehow a legal argument. But these ideas perpetuate things such as broken window policing, mandatory minimums for non-crimic crimes. They allow people to look the other way because we probably had it coming. So once we tie the label of suspect to someone, we attach all that additional baggage to them as well, even though we've never met them or talked to them, understand where they're coming from, and couldn't prove anything. This is why in the days after a highly publicized shooting, you've seen so many articles about the sordid pasts of the victims, such as Alton Sterling, or how Castile looked like an armed robbery suspect, etc. Or, look, he posed on Facebook with a gun once. If, if we can turn these victims into suspects, their deaths are easier to accept. Lack of repercussions for causing those deaths is easier to accept. All the while, we're ignoring the fact that even if these backstories were true, they in no way correlate to or justify these deaths. See, the question's not, do you automatically hate me and hate my black skin when you see it? It's what assumptions are you putting on my black skin that I've in no way shown I deserved? And why won't you stop? Why is there a specific time and place, not just for my equality, but also for my asking for it? And where and when the hell is it? And when I do ask for it, why do you think I'm not being sincere? Why must I have shown a history of asking for it before I'm allowed to ask for it? Why does it matter if I'm a second string quarterback, the president, a civil rights leader, or a guy with a podcast if I'm speaking the truth? A truth we say we hold as self-evident. This is not the end of the conversation. This is just the beginning. We have so much further to go. But for now, I'll have to let you go. So thanks for listening to You Are Not Listening to This. Get at me on thisiswilljames.com. And God bless these United States of America. So let's end this off properly with a little Whitney. Don't take me down for using that.